Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan on staff at Upper House, and I'm, as always, speaking to you from Madison, Wisconsin. It's unseasonably warm here this month of June, which is encouraging us to get outside in the mornings and to gather again, much different than June 2020, that's for sure. Well, one of the benefits we at Upper House see for the podcast is being able to leverage many of the speakers, the great speakers we have, into different mediums and venues, including the podcast. And today's episode is one of these cases. This episode is actually going to be a new type of subseries for us called From the Vault, which particularly over the summer, we'll be pulling out some of our old episodes. But over the course of the next year, we'll be doing the same thing at different points, just trying to resurface some of the great insights that speakers have given us over the years here at Upper House. So back in March of 2021, so just a few months ago, we hosted a conference for students called Worked Up, Navigating Career and Calling After College. And the task of helping to equip students to understand their callings is one we embrace here at Upper House uh, in many of the different activities and initiatives that we do here. The event, Worked Up, was an all-day affair with numerous local business leaders participating and talks from practitioners as well as people with a theological training. We also had talks by leaders from the organization Made to Flourish, one of the most active and exciting organizations that works with pastors and other leaders in the work and faith movement. And a link to Made to Flourish is in the show notes. One of the talks during the conference was by Paige Wiley, the engagement coordinator for Made to Flourish. Paige is a recent graduate of Kansas State University, and in the talk that we're going to listen to today, she speaks about vocational discernment and calling from her own recent experience and from a biblical framework. Her talk was titled The Ten Myths of Work, and while Paige is addressing students, when we listened to this at the time and then afterward, we were so struck by the wisdom she imparted that we knew we had to find more ways to get the word out about this very good take on work and vocation and faith. So we'll be getting to Paige's talk in just a moment. Before leaving, one additional point here. As the podcast is growing, we figured we use it to briefly highlight upcoming events at Upper House. So when it makes sense, we'll mention something that's on our calendar, and hopefully it can go onto your calendar as well. So on June 24th, we're hosting a virtual event, Science, Race, and Faith, Insights from Hispanic Congregations. This is in partnership with Science for the Church, which, if you're a regular listener, should be familiar to you from past episodes that we've partnered with Science for the Church on, including interviews with John Lennox and Curtis Chang most recently about Christians and the Vaccine. This event will feature Edgardo Rosado, a director at Ciencia Fe y Esperanza, which is an initiative that promotes faith and science integration among Hispanic congregations. Edgardo will be talking to Greg Cuzona, the co-founder of Science for the Church. It looks to be a fascinating conversation, and it's also the second in a series. We had an event in 2020 uh, around science, race, and the church as well that you can check out 
on our past events page, and that'll be in the show notes as well. So for more info and to register for the June 24th virtual event, you can head to where you can always see what's coming up on our program calendar, upperhouse.org slash events. So thanks for sticking with me a little longer there. With that, let's turn to the main feature today, a talk by Paige Wiley on the 10 myths of work. So I do want to start out by appeasing my imposter syndrome a little bit first. Um, I do want to point out and acknowledge that I probably don't look that much older than you all. Um, I'm only 26. So I'm a couple years removed from college. But um, I do want to say that I, I think I've done a lot of thinking on faith and work. Actually, in the last uh, in the first 13 months after I graduated college, I had already had six different jobs. Um, and I had a lot of questions along the way of how my faith and my work were connected if they were at all. Those jobs brought me from customer service to retail, human resources, student affairs, gardening, which is funny because I have no experience at that. But anyways, I have done a lot of thinking about the faith and work world. And so today I think it's sometimes even more important to learn what is true by learning what is not. So today we're going to walk through 10 myths of career and calling together. So if you're taking notes, write this down. The first myth today that we're going to go over is that work is a necessary evil. So I'm assuming you've heard this type of myth before. Um, it's kind of the sentiment of I hate Mondays or um, TGIF. It's the sentiment that we are sledging through the workday in order to get to the part that we really want, whether that's uh, five o'clock, the end of your workday, or whether that's the weekend. Work is seen as this thing that you have to sludge through in order to get to the good stuff. And unfortunately, I think even the sentiment um, sometimes comes through in our church settings as well. That work is hard and that it's toilsome, um, that it's a means to an end even just to tithe or to give to our brothers and sisters overseas. So I think one of the main reasons this myth exists, both inside and outside the church, is that in the context of our four chapter story that Luke just laid out for us earlier, I think we're starting in the wrong place. Um, so again, this might be a bit of a review, but the four chapter gospel. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. When we talk about work in the way that it is a means to an end, that's toilsome, um, that it's this necessary evil, I think we're starting halfway through. We're starting in the second chapter instead of the first we find ourselves in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, which if you are in your Bibles, you can turn there, but I will also read it for you. It says um, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Curse is the ground because of you. Though painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Starting in that second chapter, so it's after sin has entered the world, and it says God is giving just punishment to humans for that sin. However, when we start here, when we're talking about work, I think it's kind of like walking into a movie 30 minutes too late. <laughs> Have you ever been there where you, you know, maybe the popcorn line is too long or your friend is really late and carpooling was a bad idea? <laughs> um, if you walk into a movie 30 minutes late, that's a really disorienting experience, right? It doesn't make sense. And you're trying to piece together all of the characters and the storylines that you had already missed. So I think what we need to do then is to back up 
we need to approach work in the way that it was intended and backing up into chapter one of that four chapter narrative. When we look at the cultural mandate, which is in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, as Luke had recited earlier, we see that God is actually giving Adam and Eve an earth filled with good ingredients, telling them to cohabitate, co-cultivate, and co-steward that world together. God granting us work is actually not meant to be a punishment for our sins. And I think it's important to note that it is still toilsome. It is still hard. We're not trying to dispute that scripture, right? If we back up to that first chapter, we see that work is part of God's original and good and perfect design. This framework can and should help us reshape the way that we see work going forward. Not as something to sludge through in order to get to that good part of the week, <laughs> but as something to wake up to and see as something as our dignity and our design. Myth number two, my work defines my worth. So I like to see this as two kind of cultural narratives when we come to work. So I like to see it as a pendulum with two really opposite ends that have different symptoms. So the first is that work is nothing. And the second is that work is everything. And each of those symptoms that uh, accompany each of those places on the pendulum, if work means nothing, there is a sort of apathy to work itself, which again, we kind of covered earlier with that work is a necessary evil. So I'll spend more time today, actually, on the myth that work is everything, that um, it actually produces anxiety with as much stress and pressure as that sentiment causes. Uh, the narrative that work means everything, I'll kind of dive into that a bit. It's kind of seen what people might call, you might be familiar with hustle culture. Um, it's people who find a lot of work, um, sorry, worth and identity in the work that they do. There's actually a recent Atlantic article that came out in 2019 that coined the phrase workism, which they are kind of dubbing as this new religion that's emerged in the last decade or so in the United States. And I'll define that for you. Workism is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic productivity, but it's also the centerpiece of one's life and purpose. So if that's true, that's a really big deal, right? <laughs> that if our work is the centerpiece of identity of who we are, that means the stakes are really high. One of the jobs that I had um, growing up actually in my college career was that of a career counselor. I talked to students all the time, asking them questions about their interests and skills, and my job was to help them pick majors or minors, certificates or career paths that would best match their interests. It was the best job in the world. I still talk about it today, how much I loved it. One of the most interesting and I think common themes that I found throughout that process, though, in meeting with students um, was this theme of anxiety, was a theme of fear. And I don't think that necessarily um, that fear is based on financial means. I don't know if it was really even placed in being able to find a job after college. I think if I had to define it as a cultural anthropologist, that uh, it was a lot more about how is my work defined uh, with my identity? So in, an, in other words, the question that I was trying to help people answer was not what will I do for work, but the question I was trying to help people answer is who am I? Our work and our identity have become so closely intertwined. So we just talked about the goodness of work. So I'm not here to tell you the opposite is true, that work is bad. I'm here to say that um, work is still a good thing. However, it's not our desire to work that's a bad thing. It's when we elevate good things to ultimate things. 
on page 41 of your worked up workbooks, there is a helpful tool uh, called the idolatry inventory. Um, and that is kind of a helpful assessment that you can take to help identify different idols in your lives. So um, they're specifically attuned to work. So some of them could be a uh, productivity idol. There are helping idols, uh, power idols. For me, perfection has long been an idol in my life. You know, I like to make the team. I like to make the grades. And it kind of wasn't until those things fell apart or until that ground felt uncertain that I realized that I had put too much emphasis in my perfectionism and overachieving. It was a good desire to want to do well, but it was in its improper place as a centerpiece to my identity. Again, idols are good things that I made ultimate things. And if work is meant to be good and not elevated to an identity marker, we have to find our way back to God and Christ as the center point of our identity, helping us to reorder our loves and restructure our identities to the places that they're meant to be. Myth number three, if I am serious about my faith, I need to consider doing missions or vocational ministry. When I was in college, ironically, I was working at a career center, helping people figure out what they wanted to do, but um, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> I, I knew that I loved Jesus. I knew that I wanted to make his name known. And um, that was about it. <laughs> I had skills. I had talents. I was you know, good at school and all that, but I had no idea what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And so either consciously or unconsciously, I started kind of uh, creating this hierarchy of work in my head to try to help me make that decision. The pyramid had um, those most important jobs at the top, uh, which I, in my brain, had started saying, okay, ministry is important, min missions is important, nonprofits or helping jobs, like those are the best, right? And I had mentioned that perfectionist idol before. I think in my brain, I, I wasn't necessarily trying to find a job that maybe glorified God the best. I think I was just trying to be the best. I was trying to be the best Christian, and I was trying to make Jesus the most proud of me, which, again, comes back to idolatry. So, but in some ways, like vocational ministry and missions does seem kind of like the AP version or the honor roll version of Christianity, doesn't it? Like if you're really in, if you're really sold, like that is what you're meant to do. At least for me and my experience, that's kind of how I, I had felt. But when I really began to think about it, I thought, okay, what if we were all the best Christians we could be? What if we were all pastors? <laughs> what would the world look like? So I really thought about it by God's grace. And I thought, okay, so if we were all pastors, uh, we wouldn't have judges that were upholding our laws in our communities. And we wouldn't have architects who were competently building structures and walls that we use to live and work. And we wouldn't have insurance agents who were giving us peace of mind over things that we had no control over. What I didn't realize was that I was breaking work into this sacred and secular divide. And I didn't realize that really because of the cultural mandate, because of God's mandate that all work is good work, that all of that work could also be ministry. All work that helps the church and communities flourish is good work. One of my favorite books, which I actually highly recommend to you all, is called Every Job a Parable, and it's by John Van Slotten. And he just talks about how different occupations uh, reflect different parts of who God is. So he talks about how FBI agents and Walmart greeters and astronauts all reflect something different about God. And I love this. And I love this because um, I like seeing the world of work as this gem or a diamond. 
I like seeing it at, you know, like when you see a diamond head on, it's really beautiful, right? It's pretty shiny, whatever. But it's not until you really turn it, it's not until the light that's refracted on it is, it hits it just right that you see all the dimensions of that diamond, that you see the full glory and glimpse of what that could be. This is how I see the world of work. So I see that um, if you have the skill set for vocational ministry missions, great. That is a part of that gem and that diamond. But if math and economics is what you feel like you were made to do, great. Pursue that. That's part of that diamond, too. And maybe you're interested in developing curriculum for education of all ages. Awesome. That is also part of that world of work. There is not just one way to love or serve God. If all work is ministry, all work is good work. We are his body, and we are made up of different functions and talents. Use them where they are needed. Number four, myth number four, God will always tell me exactly what to do with my life. I love this myth because it feels really personal, because it is really personal. It's how I expected God sincerely to show up and help me contribute to my vocational future. Even though I was a straight A student and I had talents and skills, I always felt anxiety over this decision of what I was going to do after I was a student. So I prayed. I prayed a lot. <laughs> I don't know if you're in this position yourselves, but I sat on many a mountaintop moment trying to ask God, really begging God to just give me an answer. Just give me a calling. Just tell me what he wanted me to do. I had my hands open and a willingness to serve. So I was really frustrated, as you can imagine, when I didn't get an answer, that I was constantly met with silence. And I was more and more frustrated as I felt like I was continuing to give that heart to God and God was not answering those prayers. I even found myself jealous of people in the Bible as I was doing quiet times uh, who had those callings. You know, I would read the story of Moses and hear about how God told him, what to do, exactly what to do, and where to go through a burning bush. I was like, God, you can do that for Moses. Why aren't you doing that for me? But, you know, looking back, I think I had the right heart. I think I had the right understanding that my work was meant to be something for God. However, I do think I had the wrong expectation. I think I had the wrong idea of how God was meant to speak to me, or even what the idea of calling looked like. So the more I studied the Bible, and really the more I talked to my friends and people post-college, the more that I realized that God doesn't give all people this really specific calling. You might have friends um, that have heard God to go to this place or do this thing, and that's great, and we love um, upholding that and applauding that as that happens for them. But for some, and really more often than not, that doesn't happen. So if that's the case for you, and I think, again, that contributes to that anxiety, if that is the case for you, I do want to give you some practical tips. A lot of these myths are actually just debunking uh, the myths that we believe, but I think this is really important, and I would love to give you some tips here as we go. So if we are met with that silence, as I also was, how do we make those choices and decisions going forward? First step, I would say, is pray. <laughs> Might be a boring first answer, but... Pray, pray about everything. Go to God, not only with your questions and not only with um, your requests, but just tell him where you're at. Go to God with your heart and your feelings and your forks in the road. Tell him what you're thinking. Tell him where you want to go and just let him have your heart. I think prayer is a means 
for our hearts to more overlap with his. And I think that the more you go to God with those things, the more that he will honor and be faithful to you. The second, I would say, is submit. So like I said, when I was on those mountaintop moments, I was trying to submit. I was trying to tell God, listen, it's not my will, it's yours. Just tell me where to go. I'll do whatever. Submit and ask God to make your heart ready for what he has in store. The third thing is to ask. So if you do have those really specific questions, if you're between two job offers, if you're wondering what study to live in or who to live with, um, I think that's totally okay. Ask God if he has a preference. Ask God if he's leading you one way or another. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he really does care. And God has definitely led me in those ways before. Sometimes they're less audible and less, I would say, acute, but God does still lead our hearts. Again, as, as our hearts overlap with his in prayer, I think he does give and guide as we go. So the fourth thing then, if you have done all these things and you still feel that silence, and again, I am with you if that is where you're at, utilize your wisdom. If you haven't felt the Lord direct you in that process, I really want you to hear this. It does not mean that he is ignoring you. It doesn't mean he's playing tricks on you. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care. I think one thing that we forget a lot about God is that he is offering us a life of freedom. And yes, that means freedom in our um, salvation. It means freedom in how we interact with God, but it also means freedom in how we move and go about in our work, in our world now. There's not only faith in your vocational process, but there's also freedom. And remember that God wants to give you a free life and the wisdom that he has bestowed on you in order to make those decisions on your own. But I'm going to move on to myth number five as it kind of hints at some of those things. So myth number five. I can avoid adulthood if I just find a fun job. So again, after college, I had no idea what I was doing, but my biggest fear in the world was going back to my hometown and finding a comfortable job. So at the time, I didn't really have any sort of theology of work. Um, I didn't know anyone in my life who both loved God and loved work and did those things well together. And so I imagined that if I went back to my hometown, found a job, that that season of my life would have me either choose, have me choosing one or the other. Plus, honestly, I was scared of like dental plans and 401ks. So <laughs> I was like, we're not doing that. We're going to do something more fun than that. So I tried an escapist route. I spent a year traveling around finding different work in different places in the world and uh, kind of attempted to avoid the adult thing <laughs> for at least a year if I could. So I picked up and I moved to Orlando, Florida. I worked at Walt Disney World for a season, working retail at the happiest place on earth. <laughs> I was trying to find comfort uh, in fun and adventure and experience that ultimately came up short for me. I am grateful for the experience. I'm glad that I went. I absolutely hated my job there, <laughs> partly because it wasn't part of my skill set, um, but I think partly because I just didn't have the place or the purpose to root me there. I can talk more about that experience later, but I'll move on. So after that experience at Walt Disney World, I, I opened Lyft. So the next five months, I went to Rocky Mountain National Park. I worked at a YMCA camp up there and met actually a lot of people like me who were kind of in the seasonal transitional time of their life. Um, there were young people my age, retirees, international students, 
people who were just kind of wandering, asking the same questions and um, in that transitionary time of life, a lot of escapists as you will. That was a really fun time of my life. It was really uh, fun, humbling, adventurous. It filled that hole, that craving I had for doing something new, getting out and experiencing a, apart from my hometown. But, uh, you know, eventually that season ended too. And I found myself actually at the end of that experience, having done exactly what I wanted, but feeling all the more lost and actually spiritually unfed. So I picked up and left again. <laughs> and I went uh, for a summer, I traveled abroad. I found a scholarship that allowed me to go to Northern Ireland for a month. And I spent that month working at a wedding venue slash gardening um, estate. And again, it was fun. I had a great experience. I did exactly what I wanted to do and met great people and experienced new things. But at the end of that year, once again, I didn't feel like I found myself. I feel like I did the things that I wanted, but I didn't feel like I was grounded. I actually felt more lost. So every story will be different. Uh, if you are on the brink of doing a year like that, I am not trying to knock it. And I'm not saying that it will be the same experience for you. But I came again to the end of that adventure year doing exactly what I'd wanted, not making any regrets really about the choices I had made, but just feeling like I was made for something more than fulfilling my own needs for my own self. Another caveat here, I, I believe that God is fun. Okay, like God created laughter, he created jokes. I totally believe he has a sense of humor. Like if you've seen a narwhal or a platypus, like that's hilarious. God is an inventor of funny things. But, you know, I think when we think about it, fun can be an idol too. And just as we talked about things like work or passions becoming idols in our lives, I think fun and adventure can also take that place in our hearts. However, I really believe that when we're following God with our whole hearts, that he believes and knows what we want. Like he knows uh, our passions and our desires for maybe an adventure year or an area of fun. I truly believed God opened the doors to allow me to experience that year in order to kind of find him more through it. And I really believe that if we trust him to help us order our lives into our identities in the proper places they're meant to be, he will help us order first things first and second things second, restructuring our loves to the places they're meant to be. Myth number six, we were only made with one passion to follow. So I'm assuming at some point in your life, you've been asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, eventually that question transitions into what's your major? What's your five-year plan? At the heart, I think people are asking that question, what are you passionate about? I am guilty of using this question all the time. <laughs> when I worked at that career center, uh, it was such an easy shorthand, right, for asking people, like, what do you care about? What are you passionate about? However, the thing is that that question, I think, comes with the assumption that we were only made for one thing, that we were only made with one passion to follow. I think this can really pigeonhole students, or really adults even, into um, some anxiety, because I think it, uh, again, it just comes with that assumption that there's only one thing that you are made to do. And for those who have a lot of interests or who have a lot of things that they care about, I think that can lead to a lot of anxiety, either in the choosing of which one is the most important to you or in choosing that vocational future. I really believe that we aren't only called into one thing. I really believe we're a collection of passions and interests when you really think about it. 
So for instance, example in my life, I love writing. Uh, I have always had that thread throughout my life. I've always loved writing in class, um, outside of class. Uh, it's something that I get to do that overlaps with my vocational work sometimes. However, uh, I also love, I'm passionate about going on walks with friends. <laughs> I'm passionate about spending time together with community and I'm passionate about getting outside and being active. I also have an adoration for linguistics. It was a vocational path I considered while I was in college, but have not pursued and perhaps will pursue sometime down the road, but I'm not currently engaging with right now. I also have passions for The Bachelor. I'm not kidding. I could talk about The Bachelor all day long. I actually think it's very important and interesting to dissect. Uh, I have a passion for coffee. I have a passion for pop culture and Twitter. These are all passions that the Lord has actually given me to steward. And we often throw it in the bucket of something that we're going to do for work or for our vocation. But I think as we narrow into our passions, and really, uh, I think narrow isn't the right word, but more um, come into more clarity about what our passions are, we're able to live and engage better while in the here and now. So instead of asking about passion, um, I actually like asking these two questions. And these are they're in your book, but you're welcome to write them down as well. The questions are, where do you feel a holy contentment? And where do you feel a holy discontent? I'll explain those real quick. So the holy content, I like to think of where do you feel like the world stands still? Like, where do you feel like you are doing something that you so clearly feel like you were meant to do? Whether that's a talent or a skill or a class, for me, it's writing. I can sit in a coffee shop for hours working on a piece, developing ideas. I love the crafting and editing process. It takes hours, but I, I love doing it. For me, that's my holy contentment. The second question then is, where do you feel holy discontent? I think of this question is, is what is broken in the world that needs restoration? Where does your heart break in the same way that God's heart breaks for something in the world, whether that's a person or whether that's a structure or whether that's an injustice that needs restoring? I think these give us a better picture and frankly, better lists of things that we're passionate about and things that feel God given. These may give you a better compass as you engage with life well now as a student and as you think through your vocational future. Moving on, myth number seven, I need to know what I'm going to do before I go to college. So I'm assuming most of you sitting in this room um, are already in college, so that might not apply as much to you these days. But I do think it's a belief that you've probably functioned out of as you came into college. One of the most disorienting things I remember was when I was in seventh grade and I was asked to do a project for one of my classes, and uh, they asked me to do research or pick out the top four or five colleges that I thought I wanted to go to based on my interests and skills. And I remember thinking like, I am 13. <laughs> like I barely know what college is. I don't know if you have felt the same pressure, um, but that pressure continued for me through high school. It's kind of the assumption that I would find a college and know what I was going to do by the time I was 18 and walking across the stage at graduation. I came in actually as a declared major, but what I hope to uh, break that myth on is that not knowing is actually very common. I came in, declared, and actually changed my major the first um, year of college, which around 20% of students actually come in undeclared. And around 30, it depends on the stats you look at, but around 30 to 50% change their major at least once in their college career. So if you 
feel like you are uncertain or unsteady, um, you are in good company, I promise. Actually, around 10% of people change their major around three times. So that indecision that you might be feeling, um, again, is actually quite common. I really think of your 20s as a time for training. So I think of this time as the ability to explore, you know, take new classes, join new clubs, meet new people, learn from the world around you as you are navigating that process. I, I don't think that you have to know what you need to do as you come in, but I think as you see this time as a time of exploration, that will free you from having to know, but it will give you freedom, again, that theme of freedom in learning the process as you go. I like to think of this also in this metaphor that I think of my relationship with God in. Uh, it's one of my favorite metaphors I, I think of, but I think of um, my time with God or my relationship with God as a series of trust falls, but I think of it as like Tarzan style. So like swinging through these vines and branches and I see like each leap and each jump from each branch as uh, a trust fall with God, like trusting that I will get to the next branch that he will lead me to it, or at least that he has enough band-aids to uh, help me if I hit the ground. I know that this time in your life seems really serious and it seems like you need to make all of the right choices and decisions um, as you're thinking about your future. But I really think that God gives us freedom as we move about and not needing to know all of the steps before us. Like you're on your the start of your vocational journey. So I really want to allow you guys to have yourselves freedom as you swing through the, the branches and the vines with your God. Myth number eight is pretty similar, but a little bit different take. So the myth is that I need to know what I'm going to do with my life before I leave college. So the first was before I enter college. The next is before I leave college. One of the reasons we titled this book Worked Up is um, we wanted to hit on that anxiety that students felt from that bridge from college to career. Again, I've mentioned that a lot. I think that's a very common theme throughout a lot of colleges and a lot of places. Frankly, also, I think that Christians place a lot of that anxiety on themselves, too, in trying to navigate and do the right thing and the right path, which we will actually get to in the next myth. But if you are a student and you've been a student your whole life, that jump to make to a career is scary, right? So I do want to give you comfort as someone who is on the other side of that vine swing. That's going to be okay. And I want to give you a couple of reasons why I really believe that. Um, the first is just a stat that I found, which is each person on average changes their career about five to seven times throughout their life. So if you don't know what you're doing or if you don't know what the future will bring, again, you're in good company. A lot of us don't know what we're doing and a lot of us are figuring it out as we go. That change and that shifting as you grow and mold as a person is actually a good thing. And you do not need to know the entire path before you as you set out on that future. The second um, thing that I want to say in that realm is that I think it's less about knowing your future and it's more about doing the next right thing. So if you have seen Frozen 2, which, okay, I really, I really try to distance myself from the crazy like Disney adult, but sometimes it comes out, so bear with me. But if you've seen the movie Frozen 2, there's a song called The Next Right Thing, sung by Princess Anna, and it actually has to do more with grief and, and that kind of context, but I think it has a lot to do with how we think about our vocational futures. I think it is a lot less about knowing what the future will hold and knowing how you will um, navigate that 10, 20 years down the road. Even the five-year plan question can seem really overwhelming as employers are probably starting to ask you that. 
But I really genuinely think, especially in a life with God, it is only about doing the next right thing, which is how I usher you into the third point of that evidence, which I love pointing to Proverbs 16, 7, which says, a man's heart plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. I think that the gift in being a Christian, that you have this faith in a God that is higher than you, that is smarter than you, and that is more powerful than you. And he is interceding on your behalf. So story time again, when I was um, in my senior year, I started to apply to a lot of what I like to call big girl jobs. Um, I applied for uh, a bunch of jobs that either would bring me back to my hometown or were kind of around the areas um, that I thought adults just took jobs in, not necessarily based on my skill set, but just things that I thought that was the next step. And again, I worked at a career center and I was a pretty good student. So I, I had no qualms whether I would be getting any of those job offers. But I kind of found myself really confused and frustrated when over the course of about a month, each like of those three or four jobs that I had applied for, each of them fell through. Each interview process halted or I got the call that I didn't get the job. And I was more and more confused about why God was closing these doors and keeping them locked. So I questioned it at the time, but looking back, um, I really believe the Lord had a better plan for me. Looking back, these weren't roles, again, that fit my skills or passions. I wasn't ready at all to move home. Um, and I really needed that season of exploration and adventure. So God, being the God who is gracious and loving to us, allowed those doors to be closed in order to usher me to something else. A man's heart plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. So that being said, I really believe God is with you. I can't promise that he will give you exactly what you want, and I can't promise you that the timing will be what you want. I'm assuming that with the year we've all had, you're kind of used to lost expectations and grief. And I would expect that there's some part of that that also has to do with your work. But I can promise you that God will provide you what, with what you need. And I really, truly believe that he's directing our steps as we submit and pray, pray to him and submit to him, that he can see the bigger picture and directs and guides us in his love. Myth number nine, there is only one right career path out there for me. So this might seem a little similar to um, the myth before about finding your passion, but I, I like to see this one as a little bit differently. And I like to frame it as this thing I call the bullseye distortion. So it's this belief that there is only one right thing out there for me. And if I don't find what it is, if I don't, you know, crack the code or find the end of the maze, somehow God will be mad at me or somehow I have messed up. I remember a pastor saying this to me, side note, and I remember thinking, I can't believe that I believed that, but that's exactly what I was believing. Because if this is true, the stakes are really, really high, right? It means that there is only one thing that we're set out for, and there's a lot of worry and anxiety over having to place our ability to make decisions and skills and uh, breakout room abilities as high or as equal as God's. So I think what helped me in my experience and my story is uh, a reframing of calling. I, it wasn't until I started working actually here at Made to Flourish that I heard the phrase, different seasons call you to different things. And you might have already heard this and you might be a lot smarter than I was uh, at your age. But I, I instead started to think of calling as a moving target instead of a bullseye that I had to hit. And as I looked back on my life, 
and kind of re-looked at the jobs that I had had at different points, I was able to see that more clearly. Like I saw at 16, my first job as a tutor, um, that I was called to be a tutor. And at 19, I was called to be a camp counselor for a summer. And at 22, I was called to be a student staff at a career center. And at 26, I was called to work and write about faith and work. Each calling was interconnected and each informed the other. And my job wasn't to know what the endpoint was. It wasn't to hit a bullseye, but it was simply to be faithful in the season that God had planted me in. One of my friends said the other day, I think our calling is less of a burning bush and more of a domino effect. And I think she's right. I think God is less interested oftentimes in telling us exactly what to do and instead is allowing us that freedom to move and change and grow with him as we grow and mature and change. I love the story of Joseph because I think it gives us a really good picture of a nonlinear career path. He went from being a shepherd to a slave, a servant to a prisoner, and eventually the second in command of Egypt, saving his family and so many others from a famine. Like, I love this because I think this is so much more commonly what God uses in broken people and messy lives. And we'll talk about that later today as we um, navigate calling in our third session. But I think more often than not, the Christian life is one of surrender. Like it's surrendering each day, again, being faithful in each day, instead of having this not this linear path that we need to follow and take. The question then is, do we trust God as we go? I love uh, the verse, Matthew 6, 33, which says, seeking first his kingdom and righteousness and all these other things will be given to you. It's trusting God that he works all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We see that in Joseph. We see that in Moses. We see that all throughout the Bible. And it's also seen in your stories. All right, last myth for the day. If I find the right job, I will never work a day in my life. Now, secretly, I kind of like this little myth. I think there's an optimism in it that um, sometimes doesn't come with those myths that have symptoms of apathy for our work. And I think it's honestly, this is more of just a joyful way to look at our work. Um, and as someone who's been in the workforce for at least a couple of years, I can tell you that I've had jobs that I've loved and I've had jobs that I've hated. And I just want to prepare you for this truth. <laughs> there will always be a part of your job that will feel like work. If we go back to the curse in Genesis 3, where Adam's work is cursed because of toil and hardship, we notice that there is just a reality of that hardship in this fallen world. Like, that is just part of being a human. There um, will be things about our labor, no matter how fun or adventurous, that um, we will be waking up and and asking God to please give us a sick day or please give us the ability to stay in bed. And this is part of that not yet chapter. This is part of the third chapter as we see glimpses of God's kingdom coming, but not having it fully restored to its perfection. So I'll give you two examples. So again, going back to that job as a career counselor, I have mentioned this before probably too much already, but I loved that job. Like it was so incredibly fulfilling to sit across from students every single day, getting to ask, what do you care about? And having them you know, having their eyes light up as they told me exactly what they cared about. Like, 
I loved hearing from other communications majors who told me why linguistics and why communication patterns are so important and getting to connect with them that way. And I loved when an engineering student would sit across from me because I had no idea what they were talking about, but I was so excited that they were excited about something that I didn't understand because that was actually a part of the world of work that I didn't have to. I got to entrust it to other people like that. But again, even in this job that I think was perfect for me, I had days where I didn't want to go. <laughs> I had days where I tried to pass off appointments to my friends. I had days where I let the phone ring a little too long before picking it up in hopes that someone else would do it. <laughs> it was a great job. And sometimes it wasn't until I was actually across from a student that I was even reminded that it was a job that I liked because work is just hard. It's just toilsome. It's just how it is. On the flip side, um, I've mentioned before that there was maybe a job that was not my favorite. <laughs> um, I worked retail at an amusement park, which is exactly what you'd imagine working retail at an amusement park to be like. It wasn't a job that I specifically really woke up excited to do. I wasn't really all that thrilled to bring up overpriced plush toys or get yelled at by guests. But the thing was, there were days in that career counseling job that were terrible, and there were days at that my least favorite job that were really fulfilling. I think I think of that uh, job at that amusement park, and I think of a day that I knew I was going to have a 10-hour shift on cash registers, and I knew that I could have the worst day ever, or for some reason, I made a deal in my mind that I was going to make every customer interaction um, a good one. I, I had the goal that I wanted to make each customer's day a little bit better than it was before they came in. And so instead of just ringing up their overpriced souvenirs, I really tried to ask them more about who they were. I tried to ask, you know, how their day was, how, what was their favorite attraction they had read or ridden that day? Um, where were they from? And actually, I found this weird connection with um, some guy from Canada who actually had been to my favorite donut shop at my small college town. There are just things and connections that you will never know without making that extra effort to try and to love your neighbor as yourself. I walked away from that day having it actually be the most fulfilling and probably exhausting work days that I'd ever had. But it was because I had put in the time and attention to love my neighbor, making that job more about the people I was interacting with than the work itself, that I um, was able to seek God in how I worked and have a fulfilling day. So I genuinely believe it's not always about the job itself um, or even where you're planted. This is not always just about finding your dream job. I think it's about praying for God's guidance and his uh, leading in those things. But I think more than anything, um, we are called to love God and love our neighbor, right? That is the ultimate commandment. So if we take that to heart, if we apply that to our work and wherever we are and whatever we do, I really do believe that we'll have a lot of good work days ahead. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.